Hi, this is Dr. Mike Chupp, and you are listening to CMDA Matters, the weekly podcast for healthcare professionals who follow Christ and desire to glorify God in their lives and practices. On this week's episode, I am joined by Dr. Corey Wilson, who is a CMDA member, and Corey introduced me to his philosophy hero, Professor J.P. Moreland, who's a well-known philosopher from Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. It is a long and I think fascinating conversation. So without much further ado, let's listen in to hear more from Professor J.P. Moreland. Well, I just want to tell you, our listeners, that one of my favorite parts of the job that uh, God has given me to do is the opportunity to talk week by week with some special guests. And this week absolutely is no exception because today on CMDA Matters, I have the privilege of speaking with Talbot Professor J.P. Moreland, who's written over 300 works. For those of you who are not aware, Talbot is a, a seminary at Biola University in California. And Professor Moreland is a philosopher and theologian that's known around the world. And I was just reading a tribute online, J.P., that's what he's asked me to call him today, JP, and I appreciate that. That's very endearing, is that JP attracts, befriends, trains, and sends into the world able servants of Christ. And today with us on the program also is one of those able servants of Christ, Dr. Corey Wilson, who's a family physician. Uh, he's been working for many years in an emergency medicine setting there in California, who had the opportunity to study under Professor Moreland at Talbot University in the past. And so several months ago, I had a guest, and we were delving into the soul and how that relates to our desires. And Dr. Wilson reached out to me and said, I really, 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 Mike, would like you to talk to my professor, J.P. Moreland, about the soul and about consciousness, if you would. And so I thought, well, the, the issue is, will Professor Moreland be willing to join me on the program? And sure enough, Last couple, three months, uh, we've been talking and preparing to talk with J.P. Moreland. So, Professor Moreland and Dr. Wilson, thanks for joining us today on CMDA Matters. It's a privilege. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Well, I was told about a brand new textbook, which I've come to understand is like one of those graduate level, 600 level textbooks for those who are really, really, really into philosophy. And the title, Professor Moreland, is The Substance of Consciousness. And it's coming out soon, isn't it? Yes, it'll be out in September. I co-authored it with Brandon Rickabaugh, and it's with a top uh, academic secular publisher. You've been teaching and talking about consciousness for a very long time, and I've learned this summer in reading. I had to dumb it down just a bit, and I had to go back, uh, by recommendation of Dr. Wilson, to a 2014 book entitled The Soul, How We Know It's Real and Why It Matters. And as time passes, we learn more and more about neuroscience and the brain, and uh, you call yourself a substance dualist. As we get this conversation going, what is a substance dualist, uh, JP? Yes, there are several varieties of it, but a general definition would be that there is an immaterial self, ego, soul, mind, call it what you will, an immaterial soul that is different from and related to a physical body. So the soul is in no way physical, but it is uh, deeply related to a body. 
And uh, there are many uh, causal and dependency relations that go both ways between the soul and the body. Well, I looked up substance in the dictionary, and, you know, when you're talking uh, to a group of healthcare professionals, especially this former general orthopedic surgeon, you know, substance to me is something pretty hard. And if you don't go in the dictionary down to about definition number eight or nine, you don't get to this metaphysical or essence principle. So is that ever a handicap for you when you talk about substance dualism? No, because uh, I think this dictionary you looked at is just uh, horribly mistaken. The history of the concept of a substance goes all the way back to Aristotle. And a god has been conceived of as a substance ever since uh, theologians began to work on the doctrine of God in the second century. And so you're confusing, and not, there, there's a confusion between a substance and stuff. <laughs> so, sure. so, so take the sentence, Mary had a little lamb. If you mean by lamb a substance, then you can ask these questions. Well, where is the little fella? When did you get him? Or, and um, where does he stay at night? And so you're talking about an individual unified entity that has properties and can remain the same through change. If it gains parts and loose parts, it's still the same uh, little sheep. And you're talking, and you can count them. There's 40 sheep on the hill. If Mary had a little lamb, if the lamb is a stuff term, then you can ask these questions. Well, how much did she eat? How many ounces were there? And you don't count stuffs, but you can measure them because they're masses of ultimate ontological goo. I mean, they're just <laughs> ultimately just fundamental material stuff that fills the electron or that fills the material. So the substance idea is not meant to be a stuff. It's meant to be any individual thing that has a nature, like God has a nature, we have a human nature, that has attributes, and that is deeply unified at a point in time and can remain the same through change. That's what a substance is. Well, on the on the platform of Judeo-Christian beliefs, I don't think there's anyone listening to us today who does not understand the concept of a soul. And we're going to get into some different perspectives on the soul, but let's start with, for a theologian like yourself, what was going to be maybe the easiest, a, a biblical, a brief biblical perspective on the soul. Well, yes, I would say that a biblical—I'm actually a philosopher, not a theologian, but I think the biblical perspective would be that the soul is the spiritual entity that informs and relates to the body. It is what departs at death and, and sustains your personal identity, even though you don't have a body, but it is best functioning when it is reunited, when it's united to a body. So it can exist without the body, but it's best for it to have a body. And so after you die, you go into the intermediate state where you're disembodied, but then you await the final resurrection. What about the philosophical, since you are a a philosopher, what are the, the prime philosophical arguments that there is this dual substance and a soul is embodied. Well, yes, there are many of them. One of them is that 99% of the people since Neanderthals who've ever lived in the world have believed that their souls are different than their bodies and they could there could be an afterlife where their body is left behind. 
Now, that doesn't make it true, but it raises a problem called the meta problem of dualism. Why is it that everybody starts off being a dualist? Little children, there have been 30 studies done that show that little children are naturally believe in the soul at the age of three, four, five. They don't have to be taught that there's a soul. Even atheist uh, cultures, little children automatically believe in the soul. And the answer to the question is why? And the answer is because they're aware of themselves. They're simply aware that of their own individual self, and they can recognize that they are conscious, simple beings that are different from their body. So that would be the first. Uh, the soul is, first of all, something is, that's not a theoretical posit. It's something that we know is real by just introspective awareness of it. The second argument is that if we have free will uh, in the full uh, kind of common sense notion that my choices are up to me, and nothing determines me to act one way or the other, then I can't be a material object. If I'm a material object, then my behavior is going to be governed by the laws of chemistry and physics. And those laws will either be deterministic at the macro level, or they will be probabilistic, depending on how you understand quantum laws and their impact on the level of ordinary sized objects. But uh, an undetermined, uh, a completely undetermined random event is not a free choice. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So uh, so in order for there to be, I have to transcend the laws of nature if I have free will. And that means that I'm a non-physical thing. Uh, so to ground free will, there has to be a soul. Another argument would be that, and I'll just give you two more real quickly, uh, would be that if you, take a physical object like a table and you gradually replace its parts with uh, new parts. Say you had a wooden table and you gradually took parts of the wood out and replaced it with plastic. During the process, you would no longer have the same table, literally, because a, a, a table is a material object that can't be the same if it gains new parts and loses old parts. Mm -hmm. I mean, we could treat it as the same, but I mean, if you at the end of this, if you've got a plastic table sitting there and started with a wooden one, it's it's not the same table. Uh, and it isn't even if you lost uh, some of the wooden parts and there was just like 10 percent of the plastic to replace them. But all the rest was the same. It still wouldn't be the same whole table. And yet I know that I'm the same from one moment to the next. There's nothing more obvious if I'm humming a tune that if I'm in the middle of it, I am the one who is currently humming it. And I was the one who began humming the tune 30 seconds ago. And I am the one who anticipates being about to hum the final part of the tune. So I am aware that over time, I endure as the same person. That's why I'm responsible for my past actions. I can't say, well, that wasn't strictly speaking me that did that. Uh, and that's why I fear going to the dentist, because I know I will be going to the dentist, not a lookalike. Mm -hmm. So if I, I, I remain the same, even though my body is not the same, strictly speaking, uh, because it gains and loses parts. And so I can't be my body. And the final one would be that disembodied existence is at least metaphysically possible. I debated three atheists along with the two Christians on life after death for six hours. And the all the atheists were willing to allow the evidence for near-death experiences to decide the question. 
Now, look, if I said to you that archaeologists had discovered square circles in Montana and there was going to be a TV show on it, you wouldn't watch it because... Uh, <laughs> it's you, nonsensical. You would. Yeah, evidence wouldn't decide that. Uh, it, you know without even looking at evidence that it's not possible. Well, these guys were willing to allow the evidence to cite it, so that means that they were admitting that disembodied existence was possible. Now, the point is, even if all the near-death experience stories are false, you suppose they're all false, at least they're possibly true. And if they're possibly true, then I can't be anything physical because there's no material object that exists anywhere, including my brain or a subregion of my brain or my body, that could even possibly exist disembodied. Mm -hmm. I don't know what it would mean to say that a rock, God could have that very rock exists as a spirit of some kind. I wouldn't be the same rock. Since I am at least the kind of thing that has the potential to exist disembodied, even if that's never actualized, then I can't be something physical because something physical doesn't even have the potential to exist non-physically. Mm -hmm. So I'll summarize by saying the possibility of disembodied existence doesn't prove life after death. But it does show that I can't be a material object because they, none of them are possibly potentially able to exist disembodied. Well, I want to thank you, JP. I want to get uh, Dr. Wilson involved here, uh, who's practicing in an emergency room and on the side is a teacher. I sat under uh, Dr. Wilson's uh, teaching a couple of Januarys ago at our Cannon Beach Conference and heard a little bit about the substance of, of the soul. So, Dr. Wilson, you encounter neuroscientists, clinicians, uh, neurologists, neurobiologists all the time, and uh, we certainly have incredible technology that allows us to understand the brain and parts of the brain and what it does. So what is at risk here, and why do a number of evangelical Christians, why are they uh, leaving substance dualism behind, do you think? Well, I think that one of the biggest factors is that they, they are confronted with this neuroscience, and they're not equipped to really think about it philosophically the way JP does, because these things don't come with their own interpretations built in, and you got to think about it. And if you just look at the brain and you say, well, the hippocampus is active when such and such happens, and that's, that just me, must be all that that is, is the hippocampus acting. And that, that really doesn't withstand scrutiny, but if you're not thinking about it more deeply, you're just automatically going to assume that that's all it is. There's a number of reasons I think that this is important. And one is that in healthcare, it's an endeavor of people taking care of people. And if you don't have a robust understanding of what a human person is, you're going to have a truncated view of that. And it's really important to understand the basis for the dignity that our patients have and the reason why we have such a responsibility to care for them. And there are consequences ethically, certainly at the beginning of life and the end of life, but also when you're interacting with people, especially in the emergency room, you see people who are really disagreeable all the time and mm -hmm. look like people that you would say, man, I, I can't see the image of God in this person at all. But then when you start understanding, <laughs> even even the most disfigured, the, the, the person that we would, you know, a leper in the New Testament, for instance, they are in the image of God. They have ultimate dignity and self-worth. And if we sell the person short, 
as far as what it is ontologically and don't understand that. It makes a difference in how we treat them. I know I know this from my own experience. I had wanted to study under JP, and in the back of my mind, I wanted to go, I wanted to get out of medicine, and I wanted to be a philosopher. And I realized along the way, JP had said one time, man, I really hope you don't quit being a doctor. And I, I took that to heart. But it, ultimately, I, I began to see what a privilege and an honor it is to take care of these people who are creatures that are not physical, merely physical creatures that have a soul. They're embodied. And it's not that the body's not important. It's very important. But it, I began to see, if you look at, you know, C.S. Lewis is the weight of glory and how we're, there are no ordinary people. We're all destined to be either something so hideous that you'd be completely revolted by it or something so glorious you'd be tempted to mm-hmm. bend the knee and worship it. And it's, it's not that that's a, in itself a proof or anything, but I think that that idea that of the, our transformation is much more at home with the substance dualism than something, yes. some other views. A lot of views and a lot of Christians, like non-reductive physicalism, for instance, one thing I learned from JP is that these views are non-reductive in certain ways, but at the end of the day, they're, there's different kinds of reduction. It's, you know, the the nothing buttery, they say, you're a nothing but this bundle of neurons or whatever. Um, and then people try to transcend that by saying, well, there's a, there's it's not reductive because there's top-down causation or things like that. At the end of the day, though, there, there's different kinds of reduction, and they're still ontologically reductive. And it's just physics and chemistry at the end of the day still. So that's going to affect our views of patients. And I, and I think, you know, I, I mentioned the beginning of life and the end of life are so important. But when we're resuscitating people in the emergency room, it makes a difference. I mean, there's a story in a near-death experience of a gentleman who was being resuscitated. And while he was clinically dead, two doctors that were there doing the code were interacting. And one of them was saying, you know, I think we should just call it. He's not going to make it. And the other guy said, no, I think we need to keep going. And so they did successfully resuscitate him. <laughs> the, the gentleman knew who had said what, and he chewed out the, the guy that wanted to let him go. So, I mean, there's a, a certain amount of respect of the person and, and it, proper understanding of this material will, I think, help us be better doctors in that sense. And I think that when they're doing those resuscitations, the vast majority, you know, to piggyback on what Dr. Moreland and JP had said earlier, the vast majority of the people in that room, regardless of their views, understand that it's very possible that this person who is just deceased is consciously aware of what's going on and what Mm -hmm. we're saying about Mm -hmm. them after that fact. Mike, could I add to that? Because I think I think Corey is is just spot on every uh, with what he's saying, and I want to emphasize one point he made that's so crucial. Just because, as he's pointed out, just because A causes something to happen to B or B is dependent on A to work, it doesn't mean that A is the same thing as B. Now, just because the soul depends on the body's functioning for it to work, that doesn't prove that the soul is the body. Uh, so a dependency, as he point, as uh, Corey pointed out, or cause and effect, or being associated with uh, the hypothalamus uh, being active is associated with a certain conscious state. That doesn't in any any way mean they're the same thing. One more thing, you said, why are Christians uh, beginning to espouse kind of a physicalist view? I think another reason, the first is they're confusing causation and dependence with identity, as Corey said. The second is 
that they think if you're a substance dualist, you're committed to platonic substance dualism. And this is all throughout New Testament studies. N.T. Wright himself made this mistake. In a lecture he gave, he said that the Bible knows absolutely nothing about substance dualism. It's completely against it. But in all of his writings, he's told us that the Bible teaches that when we die, we as a spirit depart from the body uh, to be absent from the bodies to be present with the Lord, and we await uh, the resurrection of the dead when we're reanimated. Well, you're thinking, how can he have say these in the same breath? Well, the answer is, as you look at his paper, he thought that being a substance dualist meant that you were a platonic dualist, meaning that the soul is only what the body doesn't matter. The, the goal of human life is to exist disembodied, not with a resurrected body. The soul intellectual work is more important than physical work. Look, there are, I don't know of any platonic substance dualists in the last hundred years. There are five different varieties of substance dualism, and right and biblical scholars, and I debated one at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, I was shocked at what they meant by substance dualism. They think everybody holds to Plato's version of it, and that's just a horrible mistake. So I think the second reason that so many biblical scholars are abandoning uh, substance dualism, apart from Corey's point about value and causation, is that they think if you're a substance dualist, you're committed to the uh, disvalue of the body and that you don't believe that there's a resurrection of the body. That is not true. That is just a tragic historical error. So I think biblical scholars need to read just a little bit of philosophy so they know kind of what they're saying. And N.T. Mm. Wright just was utterly confused about this. Wow. Uh, so that that's that's another reason. Well, in your 2014 book, JP, on the soul, uh, how we know it's real and why and why we know it matters, in the very first chapter, you make this statement: neuroscience is a wonderful tool for getting at the various causal interactions and dependency relations between the brain and soul, but it is inept for resolving disputes about the nature and existence of consciousness and the soul. And even in the soul, even in that primer, as I said, not, not at the level of complexity and advances of your book that's coming out uh, in September, but still I was just amazed to go through the glossary and yes. read through some things like epiphenomenalism and how consciousness has to do with, it's like smoke above a fire. It's just what, re and I mean, for a scientist, this all seems so hocus pocus. I mean, maybe, yes. maybe yes. we're looked at as having the hocus pocus beliefs, but how do physicalists deal with themselves when they go home after these debates and think about there being no free will? I mean, surely there are students who sit in their classrooms, constantly challenge them, and stand up and do all kinds of crazy things to prove them wrong. Well, like Hume said, I'm a skeptic uh, when I'm in my study, but when I'm out playing backgammon, I, I'm no longer skeptic. I'm aware of the real world. Well, these guys don't don't act like their physicalism is true unless they're in their study or they're giving lectures. But in day-to-day -day life, they think their kids are responsible for a choice they made, and they, they discipline them. <laughs> and so they li literally live like dualists in so many ways. And I think that the, I, I lectured at the National Institute of Health to about 130 neuroscientists and research biologists for two hours. It was an hour, 15 lecture, 45 Q&A. And I made the statement that I you just read, and there was I got no significant pushback on it. Mm. 
because uh, he, let me give you one quick story. Let's suppose humans have mirror neurons and let's assume, let's just grant that. And let's assume that if they aren't functioning, you can't feel empathy. Okay. Let's grant that. Now, how do we explain that? Well, there are three empirically equivalent theories that are consistent with the same data. By empirically equivalent, if two theories are empirically equivalent, that means that they imply the very same observational data and you can't decide between them on the basis of any observation. Well, there are three, one of them would be to say that a, that a, a feeling of empathy is the same thing as a firing of a mirror neuron. That would be the physical, a physicalist view, okay? That's one theory to explain the issue. The second would be a property dualist that doesn't believe in a soul, but believes that consciousness is non-physical, but it resides in the brain. So they would say that a feeling of empathy is causally dependent on the firing of mirror neurons. They're not the same. So if the mirror neurons can't fire, then they you don't have anything to cause a feeling of empathy. Though the feeling of empathy is a immaterial state of consciousness. The third theory would be to say that states of consciousness obtain in the soul, brain activity obtains in the brain. But when the soul is in the body, its functioning depends upon the organs of the body functioning. And by the way, it goes the other way, as you pointed out in, in, in a question Neuroplasticity has been a real victory for dualists because as Jeffrey Schwartz at UCLA pointed out, the semantic meanings in thoughts and the unconsciousness can actually rewire the brain. So there's a non-physical state. It's bilateral. Affecting, effect, yeah, exactly. But so if you say that the soul depends upon the brain functioning while we're in the body, then if the brain can't have uh, mirror neurons firing, the soul still has the power to have feelings of empathy, but it can't realize that because its tool is not is broken. And so all three of those theories are consistent with the empirical data, and you have to decide among them on the philosophical arguments, not the scientific data, because it's not getting at the nature of consciousness, just how it works. Mm. Uh, and, and by the way, when neuroscientists do their work, and correlate a brain state with a conscious state, how do they know what conscious state's going on? Answer, they've got to ask the person. They have to say, well, what's going on inside of you, right? Why do they have to do that? After all, they could have access to all that's going on in the brain through an EEG or something of that sort. The reason they have to ask is they can't have access to consciousness because it's privately accessible. Mm -hmm. It's non-physical. If it were physical, they'd know more, more, more about it than the patient. And so the fact that neuroscience methodology requires asking the patient, tell me about your mental state right now, indicates that it's not physical because if it were, they wouldn't have to do that. Corey or JP, have either one of you come across some authors who specifically are focused on this? I think, JP, you mentioned before we got started about a professor there um, at Talbot at Biola who talks about this. But the whole idea of neuroscience but taught by an expert who really understands uh, and distinguishes uh, the soul that you describe. Our professor, Maritu Guta, M-I-H-R-E-T-U-G-U-T-A, has published on this in our book that's coming out in September, The Substance of Consciousness. He wrote an appendix for us that gets deep into the neuroscience 
and how it relates to the philosophical questions. I uh, think Jeffrey Schwartz and there have been other neuroscientists named Burgard have done some writing as neuroscientists defending a substance dualist view of the mind-body problem. And so uh, I think looking up some of their writings could be helpful as well. So those are just off the top of my head. I wanted to close by reading a story you tell in The Soul about John Tyndall, who said way back in 1886, the chasm between the two classes of phenomena, both mental and physical phenomena, is of such a nature that we might establish empirical association between them, but it would still remain intellectually impassable. Let the consciousness of love, for example, be associated with a right-handed spiral motion of the molecules in the brain and the consciousness of hate with a left-handed spiral notion. I thought that was kind of interesting, sinister motion. <laughs> we should then know when we love that the motion is in one direction and when we hate that the motion is in the other. But the why would remain as unanswerable as before. So in your experience, JP, do physicalists, do they go there? Do they care about the why question? Some, some do. And remember, that why question is not teleological. He's not asking why in the sense of what's the purpose for this being like that. The why question he is asking is, is something that scientists themselves are constantly interested in. And it's a request for a physical causal explanation for why this motion of the brain uh, is associated with love and that motion of the brain, or now today we put it differently, is associated with hate. So while we establish correlations, like between pressure, volume, and temperature in a gas to establish the ideal gas law, that is not an explanation of anything. That is what needs to be explained. So what you do to explain why those P, V, and T are associated just that way is you build a model called the ideal gas model where there are point particles engaging in elastic collisions and so on. The point being that scientists are deeply concerned with why questions, not teleology, but with why do the tides move the way they do? Uh, well, it's because we discovered the moon is related and gravity and so on. Well, you can ask the question, why does pain occur when sea fibers are firing instead of a taste of ice cream? And correlations don't answer that question. So that's the, what, what's being gotten at here. Well, I had a fun weekend, JP, talking to my oldest daughter who's in nursing school, and we were talking about redness. All throughout your book, The Soul, it was, what is redness? And is redness the same to you as it is, is to me? So as we wrap this up, I do want to encourage our listeners, if you're like me, and I had one semester class called Philosophy and Christian Thought at Taylor. Other than that, zero exposure to philosophy, <laughs> honestly. And so the book, The Soul, uh, was a great read. Thank you, Corey, for that recommendation. If, however, you're a listener out there, like some of you are, and have had a lot of philosophy, I bet you can't wait for Professor Moreland's book to come out, The Substance of Consciousness, in which you take a deep dive. It's, not, it's a tome, isn't it? Yes, well, it's been a, a real privilege. Thank you for taking time out of your, your schedule, uh, JP, to share with us. And uh, I'm looking forward to digesting more from JP Moreland at this stage in my career. Well, Mike and uh, Corey, your dear brothers, it's been a privilege. Likewise.
What a great conversation with Professor Moreland and Dr. Corey Wilson. It certainly challenged my thinking as we consider such philosophical concepts like substance dualism, the importance of a soul, and much more. And I think we just barely touched the surface in this one short interview. JP's new book, uh, which I mentioned, is called The Substance of Consciousness, a comprehensive defense of contemporary substance dualism. And it's being released shortly. It's now available actually on Amazon through a pre-order if you'd like. We've included a link in our show notes for you today. If you want to delve more into this topic and learn more about Professor Moreland's work, you can visit his website, which is jpmoreland.com. JP's philosophical knowledge reminded me a lot of presentations that I've heard in the past from our friend at CMDA, Dr. John Patrick. He's a frequent guest speaker at a variety of CMDA events around the country. If you haven't read Dr. Patrick's regular bioethics column in our CMDA Today magazine, then just visit cmda.org slash cmda today, and you'll get caught up on his recent contributions to that magazine. I find them always intriguing, and they encourage me to think outside my usual box about these sorts of hard topics in new ways. John Patrick has a new column in each edition of the magazine. And while you're there, please check out some of the recent editions of the magazine, and you'll learn more about what's happening all across CMDA. Our magazine includes inspirational testimonies from fellow Christian healthcare professionals, public policy updates, glimpses into our future in healthcare, and also some examples of how to integrate your faith into your practice, and much more. If you haven't yet visited the CMDA Learning Center, then you are missing out. Our Learning Center is filled with continuing education courses to help you learn about today's bioethical issues. More than 100 hours of credits are available at no cost to CMDA members, and we're adding new courses on a regular basis. Designed to advance your knowledge in key areas of healthcare today, our educational content is a trusted source of education for thousands of healthcare professionals, and it's free for CMDA members. Get started today by visiting the Learning Center at cmda.org learning. Thank you, Jamie. You know, we recently did a survey of those who've been using our Learning Center and uh, got some great feedback. And just this week, we have made some improvements that will make it much easier for our members to come and go and to click on the various courses and to get Category 1 credit. So I want to encourage you to check out our Learning Center today. I was inspired by Dr. Corey Wilson and the value that he places on studying philosophy in order to better serve our patients in healthcare. And his perspective reminded me of a book that we carry in our new CMDA bookstore. It's called The Way of Medicine. You've heard me mention it on the program before, written by CMDA member Dr. Far Curlin at Duke and his co-author, Dr. Christopher Tollefson. In their book, they ask the questions, what is medicine? And what is medicine for? What does it mean to be a good doctor? Answers to these questions are certainly essential both to the practice of medicine 
and to understanding the moral norms that shape that practice. And it speaks to what Dr. Corey Wilson shared with us during this week's interview. The Way of Medicine articulates and defends an account of medicine, as well as medical ethics, meant to challenge the reigning provider of services model. The authors call for practitioners to recover what they call the Way of Medicine, which offers physicians both a path out of that provider of services model and also the moral resources necessary in order for us to resist the various political and institutional and cultural forces that are constantly pushing us as practitioners and our patients into thinking of our relationship in terms of an economic exchange. You can purchase your copy today in our new CMDA bookstore by going to cmda.org bookstore. This year's Christmas episode of CMDA Matters, we want to feature personal stories from our members about their experiences celebrating Christmas on call. Perhaps for you, it's a memory when you saw God's presence in a mighty way with a patient encounter while you were on rounds on Christmas Day. Or maybe it's a recollection of how God moved a mountain for you to be able to spend Christmas Day with family after a long shift in the emergency room. Whatever your story looks like, we would love to hear about it and potentially feature it on the podcast. If you're interested, please contact CMDA Matters at cmda.org. We can't wait to hear your Christmas story. Well, as I look to next week, I'd like to ask you to come back and join me for a recent conversation that Pastor Burt Jones and I had with Dr. Gordon Chen. He's the former chief medical officer of ChenMed. Along with his brother, Dr. Chris Chen, their family story is shared through their recent book called The Calling. Dr. Gordon Chen joins us on the podcast, and he'll be talking about his revolutionary leadership, which empowers doctors to fulfill their purpose and be a positive change in healthcare in America today. As always, if you want to suggest a future guest for our podcast, you can simply email us by using cmdamatters at cmda.org. And if you like our podcast, including our episode today, be sure to give us a five-star rating and share us on your favorite social media platform. I'd like to close by sharing with you a great testimony that recently came from a medical student in Texas who listens regularly to CMDA Matters. And that student said, I found community and encouragement through our school's CMDA chapter. These friendships have grown deeper as we have invested time in fellowship and reading scripture and have been encouraged by the example of believing physicians. I love listening to the CMDA Matters podcast because it provides refreshing education on current topics through a biblical perspective. God has used CMDA in my life to deepen my faith and help equip me to love and serve others with my identity rooted in Christ rather than a profession. I'm so thankful for all that this organization does and I cannot imagine my medical school experience without CMDA. 
Wow, appreciate that student from Texas and that testimony. What a great reminder of the work that we do here at CMDA. And why conversations like we had today with Professor Moreland and Dr. Corey Wilson are so important for our members to hear. Our mission at CMDA is to educate, encourage, and equip Christian healthcare professionals to glorify God. And that's our mission also with the podcast each week, because we want this to be a resource that educates and encourages and equips you to follow Christ and to glorify Him in all that you do in healthcare. I want to thank you for listening each week, and I pray that you were challenged by Professor Moreland to dig deeper into these philosophical topics. And as you do so, I pray you'll be equipped to be bringing the hope and healing of Christ to the world around you. Each week I say it, that is what matters to CMDA, and CMDA matters, friends. We'll see you next week, God willing. This podcast has been a production of the Christian Medical and Dental Associations. The opinions expressed by guests on this podcast are not necessarily endorsed by the Christian Medical and Dental Associations. CMDA is a nonpartisan organization that does not endorse political parties or candidates for public office. The views expressed on this podcast reflect judgments regarding principles and values held by CMDA and its members and are not intended to imply endorsement of any political party or candidate.